Andrea, my relationship with you is based on the truth. And I've decided that I will never lie to you. Lie about what, Harry? Oh, oh my God, he's gonna tell it. Oh no, I gotta go to the bathroom. Can we pause it? No, it's live. During the past few days, we've been listening to your phone conversations over this scanner. Oh. You've been listening to my private conversations? We know about Steve and your time with the Moonies. Oh my God, I, I, I feel so violated. Don't be, we're big fans. Love what you do. Hey guys, what's going on? Oh, officer, thank God. These weirdos have been listening to my private conversations on this scanner. Hey, my scanner, thanks guys. Oh my God, you're all in on this together. You people are freaks. Freaks! Hello and welcome to another episode of Long Stories Short. This is Kevin Courtright, your host. In our quest to look at the power and impact of stories, we've been privileged to speak with a writer-director, a writer-director-actor, and a 20-year veteran of the world of television writing. We've learned a lot about stories, about how they are conceived, how they're produced, and the joy they bring to our lives. Today, we are privileged to learn from a talented actress who knows more than a little about stories. She's been in the business for more than 30 years, having accrued an impressive resume of some 100 credits to her name. She's also done quite a bit of voiceover work, and she hails from my second favorite country on earth. So please welcome to the show, master impressionist, Olivia Dabo. How you doing, Olivia? <laughs> Hello, <laughs> lovely to be on the show. Kevin, it's an absolute pleasure. Pleasure to have you. So just to clarify for the listeners, uh, that last comment that I made, I stumbled onto a clip of you on a sitcom in which you did a hilarious uh, couple of impressions of both Robert De Niro and Rosie Perez. So that's why I made reference to your skills. Oh, at- yeah, yeah. Olivia Master's life. Uh, I just, I, I'm glad, I, I thought you were going to say growing pains. And <laughs> there's something I posted. Well, I, I posted it because it was on Instagram. Well, to cut a long story short, I, it was posted on my Instagram, and I thought, oh, how interesting. They're saying that uh, I, both myself and Dan Loria had done two characters, two different characters on that show um, during the duration of it being on the air. And subsequently, then, and then I, so I posted and then said yes, and it was the same creators as, as The Wonder Years, and so it was because of those two roles that they probably thought of me for Karen. But I, I thought you were going to say it was that show, and then I thought you were going to ask me to do a, an impersonation or do do one of the characters that I play, which I can't remember. <laughs> I'm not going to do that to you. I would not do that. Hey, you talking to me? <laughs> I'm the only one here. I'm the only one here. I'm the only one here. <laughs> hey, you know why you 
Also, in case you're wondering, um, I made reference to you're from my second favorite country on earth. Uh, your homeland, that's, you know, well, the mother country for us Yanks over here, is because the overwhelming majority of my favorite bands and artists originate from there. I mean, any country that produces the likes of Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, Yes, Emerson Lincoln Palmer, King Crimson, Genesis, General Giant, Pink Floyd, Jethro Tull, The Rolling Stones, The Who, Ten Years After, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, John McLaughlin, Elton John, Kate Bush, Julia Ford. I'm sure I could go on, is a country of oh, yeah. deep appreciation. Yep. And then the whole second generation of, like, those kind of artists, like, what, The Verve and uh, the two uh, the two brothers who uh, have copied the Beatles' haircuts and, and sound. Um, <laughs> Oasis? Yeah. 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 Those, those lovely Liverpoolian boys. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's got a pedigree... Um, of high art, England, I must say, you know, they, they, uh, it has sprung and continues to, to, uh, you know, push out great talent, you know, but, but there's great talent all over the world. I, I think it's just, there's something, um, very, very specific about music, um, from, from England. And, and I think, you know, obviously when you go and see theater actors from England, they, they're trained a different way. So, yeah. So yeah, it's you're fun. right. So tell us just a little bit about uh, yourself, if you would, Olivia. You don't have to go on very long about that if that's not comfortable for you. But just a little bit about you and your youth. You grew up in England, obviously, correct? Until about nine, yes. At a very sort of, I, you know, though though it was, you know, a, a short spell of my life being there. You know, obviously, I go back a lot, and I'm still very influenced by being English and being that my parents, you know, um, instilled that in me, uh, both through education and just funnily enough through sort of sense of humor, mimicry. My father was a great impressionist and mimic. He used to do many versions of, of people from, from the family and, uh, and he would usually do them around, uh, around the dinner table or breakfast table or when other family relatives were staying with us while we were staying with them. You know, it would be hard to get a word in ed edgewise. So in that regard, um, I grew up in a very artistic family and, and uh, went to a French school called the Lycée Francais. My brother went to a, a great school called Hill House, both private schools. And so we were kind of on the road to being raised in a very specific way, um, you know, getting a, getting a great education, I think my mom thought I was going to, you know, model like she did and go to the Paris collections at 16. I mean, she had a whole kind of plan mapped out for me. Um, my father was, you know, he went on the road uh, quite a bit with, with uh, you know, both both as, as a solo artist and with various different people. He was in a group with, with a guy called Mike Smith from Dave Clark Five, and so they did an album together. And then obviously he was part of... Um, well, not obviously. I mean, just as a matter of of, of knowledge, he he was part of Jesus Christ Superstar, and that, and you know, did the the Herod song on on that album, and played the piano on that, and sang it, and so um, he worked a lot, but you know, he was also home quite a bit, and and so we were we did a lot of stuff as a family. Um, my parents decided to go to a place called Taos, New Mexico, when when uh, I was about eight and my brother was a few years older than me and um they came back and decided hey we're gonna move to this place called taos new mexico um because it's 
where uh, a lot of art- artists congregate and painters. And there was a musician called Michael Murphy uh, who did a very famous song called Wildfire. He's kind of a country artist. Um, so we moved there because of this gentleman, Michael Murphy. And, you know, my mom loved Georgia O'Keeffe and she had lived there and uh, she did all her, you know, some of her really amazing, great painting there with the skulls and what have you and you know D.H. Lawrence lived there um Mabel Dodge R.C. Gorman so it really was um a place that attracted um people from Europe from New York from you know all, all around the world really um and we they decided that they wanted to move there because it really fed them I think in a way that uh London had maybe they sort of grown out of London, I think, and they were just sort of searching for new horizons. And I know my father being a musician, you know, he, he wanted to kind of get with a whole new set of musicians and, and write and stuff and expand his horizons musically. So, so yeah, we, we moved with our three cats and my brother and I, and we had like a, you know, a birthday party. Well, not a birthday party, but we had like a going away party where my parents gave away you know all of our dolls and our action men and and all of the things that uh, were in our play play boxes because we couldn't bring them with us obviously and so it was a kind of a sad bittersweet day but a great party with all of our friends and we literally said goodbye and 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 kind of closed the door to that chapter of our life and and entered into a new um chapter which was amazing uh but you know at, at first it was a little bit overwhelming and daunting because you know the culture in new mexico funny enough my fiance and i've just got back from there we uh we did a we drove from oklahoma where his parents lived to south new mexico and santa fe and so you know um if you don't know uh new mexico it, it really is a land of enchantment so you just can stretch your eyeball as far as one can imagine, and there's lots of mesas and just beautiful scenic, uh, rural, um, kind of desert-like, also mountainous, um, you know, regions all around, and, and you've got the incredible American Native uh, Indian reservation there, the Taos Pueblo, which is one of the more famous reservations, and just it's historically one of the oldest, I believe, um, there and you know literally we got off a plane from albuquerque and our cats were basically shell-shocked i don't think they ever got over it (laughs) we had moved them all those thousands of miles away from from england and then stopped off in chicago i mean literally like their hair was still standing up for several (laughs) weeks after that but we we got into a car and we drove to santa fe and then Española, and then eventually got to Taos, and it was like it's hard to describe. Really, it was kind of like going driving to the top of the world um, nice. because you drive up, uh, you know, the altitude changes significantly, and it's the same ley lines of ley lines of Tibet when you get to Taos. So energetically, a lot of people have compared it that it just kind of does something to your overall. A mind, body, and soul. And as a kid, you don't really know why, but you just sort of feel different. It's fascinating. That, that is a really, really different kind of uh, of atmosphere from England and London coming to a desert-type area in New Mexico, United States. It must have been a really, really interesting change for you. It was um, kind of like just starting a new life. Um, 
and um a new environment and so you know we had to we had to get acclimated i mean there's all kinds of things that happened um just with our kind of familiar vernacular and words that we used yeah. my brother and i i mean i got sent to the principal's office the first week because i asked uh someone in the class actually i asked the teacher if i could use his rubber you know um <laughs> Because I'd made a mistake and and uh, you know with my pencil and or, or my pen yeah my pencil and didn't have you know I couldn't erase it so I a rubber to me was a, a, an eraser in England and I, I he's like oh, Olivia you're that sounds kind of pornographic you need to go to see Mr Smith. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very good friend of mine uh, who's also was originally from England and he and his family moved over here in like 1963 or four. Yeah. And so here are these two young boys, he and his brother, they're going to school. And in 1964, the Beatles hit in the United States. And I mean, it was something for them because that British accent they had. I mean, these kids thought they knew the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh. I'm sure. I'm sure. It, it just uh, and Liverpool is, you know, it's it's a very different sort of accent. You know, it's very, very nasally. Yes. So, again, it's a different it's. The slang words and not unlike Cockney, you know, that thing that still amazes me when I go back to England, you know, your typical English regional accent has now changed. Um, but, you know, just the slang there, I mean, just the wording, the, 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 the way that people communicate, it's fascinating. I, every time I go back, I go, God, how many different accents are there? There's almost more than there are in the, in the United States. Um, I think in the British Isles, you've got Irish, Scottish, Liverpudlian, Georgian, uh, from people, Geordies, you know, you've got Welsh, you've got um, people from Kent, people from Sunningdale, people, you know, it just goes on and on and on. So it's um, it's always been a source for a lot of the comedians there, you know, because they usually are put, portraying a lot of those kind of people in those kind of regions. Yeah. Now, I was when I was talking earlier about all the bands and artists that I love from your homeland there, um, you made reference to the fact there's also such a great uh, tradition of theater work and acting. Did you get your acting skills started when you were in England or did that start once you got here to the States? Yeah, sort of. I mean, my first time on stage, I was about four or five at the Albert Hall and I did a I was in a ballet class. Um, a very, you know, I was in a pretty uh, advanced, um, you know, Royal Ballet I took there as a kid. And, um, so it's pretty extensive. I was, you know, training to be a dancer and, uh, I got, uh, we just, they took, they took one of the classes and they said, you know, we're going to do, we're going to do this kind of musical, this, a bit from, from a musical you know, we're going to do a musical number, and it was called "Me and My Teddy Bear." And so, so I got I got the gift of the gab there, I think, and just that feeling, the bug of being on stage. And then I thought, saw my father doing um, Gulliver's Travels, which was a, you know, it's a very famous, um, uh, you know, play and story. But um, he took it and converted it into a musical and wrote all the music. And so, both. Both times uh, that both my brother and I were born, he was actually on stage, and it's why he couldn't be at the hospital to my poor mother giving birth. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
he had a good excuse and a good reason. Um, and so I remember seeing him doing it for a third time, I think, I think on my seventh birthday or my sixth birthday. And I saw him up on stage and I just assumed because he was my dad that I could, you know, walk up the stage steps and get on stage with him because he was my dad. And he had to tell me to go and sit down and that he'd bring me up, you know, after the show was over, which he did. Um, But I just, uh, there was something happened to me, I think. I thought, well, he can do it. I can do it too. I mean, he's my dad. And and when I got on stage, I really liked the feeling. Sure. Um, of looking out at, a, at an audience or just feeling them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it kind of started there, but I don't think until I got to New Mexico, which was another reason, uh, um, aside from it being a great um, new adventure and, and, and uh, you know, plateau for my parents to take together as a couple, it was, it was a great, um, it was a great uh, platform for both my brother and I because there was a lot of community theatre, so we got to... You know, we did West Side Story and, uh, and The Music Man and, and Guys and Dolls. And, you know, we did, a, we did a play called The Adobe Rabbit where I played a disco snake. <laughs> okay. And, um, yeah, yeah, I was so nervous the first night, uh, opening night, I thought I had, uh, had these really terrible stomach pains from nerves. And, but I didn't know that that's what it was. And my mom... My mum had to run me to the doctors, and he said, oh, yeah, she's got appendicitis. It's got to come out. We'll operate at five. And by about four, I was getting more nervous about the operation of the appendicitis than I was the performance. And I I was then, I I just said, yeah, mum, I think I'm fine. I can can go on. And that was, uh, that was my first real experience of like, yeah, this is, this is for me and this is what it takes and you know you do get really really nervous before you go on stage i still do to this day um and but it's a good 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 nervous yeah in fact i get concerned now if i don't get that feeling yeah i can imagine well, you, you've learned a lot of things and picked up a lot of things, obviously, from your father, what you're telling you there, because you also, again, I joked about it, but it's it's true. You have a very t- good talent of impressionism. You said your father was good at that. And they've mentioned a couple of times your father was also a very talented musician and composer. And I would re- completely remiss if I didn't spend at least a couple of minutes mentioning the fact that your skills also include being a musician. In fact, you compose and sing your own material. Yeah. It's just it's 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 interesting. It's always just been right there alongside um, of my acting, sort of simultaneously. I started composing songs with my dad, um, and you know, I was sort of classically trained initially, and I could read music kind of. But what started to happen in London is I had a very Germanic teacher who, um, you know, I think I was. It was thoroughly or something like that, and he took. Um, I had memorized it, <laughs> but it was in the same key, and so you know, I was pretending that I was reading the music as I was playing it, and then he um, he took the music away, and I was sort of still playing, and he uh, he put the he put the the, the piano, you know, the piano um, when you're on an upright piano, you know, the thing that you pull down on pull down to open and close it. Yes, he got so angry. He's like, oh, I can't believe I've wasted all this time with you. You know, you are learning this by ears. This is very bad, you know. And uh, <laughs> he put it down on my fingers and it made this just oh, horrific ooh. noise. And obviously I didn't ever go back to him as a, he, he had an anger issues. <laughs> <laughs> my goodness. 
But um, but that being said, you know, it could have scarred me. I didn't go back to the piano for until I got got to Taos, and um, my dad, you know, I would just kind of go and tiptoe over to the piano and I'd just start playing stuff, you know, that I'd be hearing on the radio and and or songs of my dad's. Funnily enough, that he posed, I would just listen to, and I would go to the piano and kind of know them by heart. And uh, he was very impressed with that, and he encouraged me to um to write you know and uh you know he'd take pieces of you know classical pieces classical bark pieces and stuff and we'd sort of say hey let's let's write something like that or see if you can come up with something like that and then what that then led to uh funnily enough was just me um eventually playing um for i went to a magnet school when i was in junior high in pacoima junior high here after we'd moved to los angeles from taos and he uh I, so i i i would play piano on stage for performances like um for the dance the dance club you know um they would i would write a piece and and then we'd work it out so that they would dance to me playing and stuff like that. So that was really my first, yeah, my first steps in 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 composing. Okay. And um, and then that kind of just led to sort of writing stuff and with lyrics and um, but it but it but it but it's been, you know, it's one of those things where um, you know, acting requires so much. Uh, you know, it's funny. I'm trying to remember who it was that said said this to me but uh, but somebody who I think was rather influential or I was at an age where I was particularly influential and they said you know you have to be one or the other because you can't be a movie star and be a musician that you can't it, it takes all of your energy to just do to just do this and and um I think I believed that for a certain amount of time until I realized that in actuality if you if if there's something and you have a voice, a very specific voice, I think I defined my narrative voice as a person um, through my music, uh, especially through um, you know the the time that I spent working on 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 the album that I released, and then I kind of did one prior to that that didn't get released, and then I had worked with a producer called Richard Perry before that one, before I had met Patrick Leonard. And, um, yeah, and I, I'd have found to do music, I'd have to really take time off and not act, you know, for a considerable amount of time. And and then, um, and, and I had, because I don't find really these days with, with mu- in the music business that people necessarily develop people the way that they used to. I mean, if you, if you go back, if you, some of the influences in musical... A uh, great artist that you spoke about um, not too long ago, like Jethro Tull, and you, you mentioned um, the Beatles and the Stones, and you know those are all very famous. Uh, and then you know you have the whole the Prague rock thing that happened when you know Genesis and Peter Gabriel was you know a triangle on stage, you know dressed up as a triangle, and, and audiences just loved it because it was like thematically um, really concentrated with. You know, it's like if, if he wanted, to, if, if Genesis wanted to do a whole album about being a triangle, um, it could go quite deep, uh, or it could be as surfaced as, as you like. It was almost like, you know, Monty Python were very big at that time too, um, yes. as comedians, and so the country, and therefore as it started to spread out into the rest of the world, uh, there was just it's just that that's where we were 
at that time in 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 art and in history and and um I think people are definitely yearning for that again uh but I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that people bands were really developed back then all the way I think up until maybe the early 90s you know the 90s and beginning of the 2000s I think slowly but surely as of recently uh and as as of late it, there's just less money to to make in the music business therefore I think record companies are more reticent to take the time to um you know really um shape and mold artists that they're that they're that they're fine signing um and I think that's kind of a shame but I do feel like um you know it, it's up to artists to kind of to to just be as specific to who they really are to to find what's intrinsically who they are i mean even like somebody who isn't as current but i mean he's constantly making albums like you know badly drawn boy i mean he has a very specific sound and you'll listen to him and then you'll listen to somebody like Sufjan Stevens and you'll kind of notice similarities you know so it's hard to say really what inf- who influenced who, but in the 60s and the 70s and, you know, like Bowie in the 80s was just like influencing Human League and, you know, all of these, you know, everybody who sang kind of like that, you know, or yeah. in the 90s, you know, Kurt Cobain and the three or four big 90s groups and unfortunately none of them are really alive except for Eddie Vedder anymore, but... Um, I'm jumping all over the place about That's music, right. but I think um, I think it gets to get to make the point to to lead back to me and and my narrative voice. I think when I really took the time musically to carve out my sound and what it was that I was really trying to say and and dug deep enough, I think um, it 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 did become very much more specific. And and luckily, I got to work with a, a, a enough people within that time frame where people were taking the time to work with an artist to really say, hey, you know, I really like that, and that's really interesting, and that's where the soft spot of your voice is, and this uh, narrative voice sounds so genuine that, that that really sounds like it's you to me you know I when I, I was in a band when I was like 16 where I think I was trying to sound like Lisa Lisa from the cult jam or I think you know I thought I thought I was like I actually thought I was really black and so a lot of the the sounds that were coming out of me uh, were very soulful and I think that I carried that through with me into um, you know now when i when i when i do stuff that's kind of soulful it, it's much more jazz based and you know it's got the r&b roots but then i can write stuff that's also very folky you know or it, it's just very classically um almost like like um you know brit rock but but the, i guess the point that i'm trying to make is if you've explored all those sounds and all those narrative voices, they all sort of end up funneling into one. And then that ends up being kind of a tapestry, which if you own it and you stand behind all these different sides of yourself, right, um, then they can come out in all kinds of different sounds and they can all blend together. So if you're not judging it, nobody else is, you know. Um, Or if people are and you're certain of who, what your voice is and you say, you know, um, sod it, 
I don't care. I don't care what everybody else thinks. This is this is me. Then at the end of the day, um, if, if you know, then then that that sound will will last and stand the test of time. And I think that's true with with any artist, whether you're an actor, a writer, a painter. You know, you have to stand behind and know who you are uh, first and foremost as a person. And I think then that translates. Um, that synchronicity then translates into your art. Yes, I, I think that's a lot of great wisdom. I, I'm very glad that you did not listen to that voice that was saying, oh, you should only do one, not the other. You should be able to just be free to, to explore all your artistic talents. I'm also glad that you were encouraged to compose. Uh, it, it sounds like when you were pretty young. Speaking of when you were young, this is a show called Long Stories Short. And I'm always curious to know from my uh, guest. What is your first memory or memories of stories? Were stories read to you when you were a child? Were you just drawn at all ever to, I don't know, shows, movies, TV? Just anything that has to do with stories unfolding before you. Do you have any memories of that? Yeah, I do. The, the best stories that were ever told to me were improvised. And that's oh. in tow what I think my son um experienced uh, as the most enriching stories for me is that um he'd just say you know put him to bed he, he sort of would prefer he'd say mom put you know mom put the book away just just improvise just <laughs> yeah tell, tell tell me what you, you know tell tell me a story you know that was that's just coming from my mind and my you know just whatever i'm drumming up at the time and my father did the same thing, you know. He'd, you know, he'd tell us, you know, when people tell scary stories. I think spooky stories. The kids, you know, they get scared by it, and they're like, oh, you know, don't, don't, don't say anymore, don't say anymore. It's too scary. I'm too scared. But that, but in the same breath, they're loving it, you know, and they're wanting, they're wanting to get the chills of the boogeyman or whatever. Um, and so I remember my dad, yeah, telling me stories. Um, improvising um, funny stories. I mean, he used to do the same thing with my brother and I when we were in the car. Um, uh, he would pretend that we were running out of gas and there was nothing around. <laughs> there wasn't a... a uh, it, there wasn't literally a house. There wasn't a need to say, I'm terribly sorry, children, but uh, I, I seem to... We seem to be running up... Oh, 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 here we go. The, the car's going putt, putt, putt. And, and we go... No! Oh, 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 I think we got just a little bit more gas to get to the the nearest village, you know. Right. So, but but to you know to a sort of seven year old and a and a and a and a ten year old that was like terrifying. My mom told some pretty good stories too. She, um, she was just very soothing as a child. She wouldn't scare scare us like my dad, but. But she was also, you know, it's like each parent has strengths and weaknesses. My dad was just like super funny. So he was kind of excused. But my mom was much more soothing, you know, and she would she would like to read us stuff from Beatrix Potter or, um, you know, The Wind in the Willows. She would like she would be very into kind of like classic stuff. And and um, and that was really great. And then my aunt, my favorite aunt, Ellen um would sing us um 
nursery rhymes and like Irish, um, because my mom was half, was half Irish, so she would sing us this lovely uh, song that went, Oh, little fishy, don't cry, don't cry. Oh, little fishy, don't cry, don't cry. And I and and I just remembered that tune. And there's something very interesting and in, uh, about nursery rhymes is they're really to me it's almost like the genesis of where my pop songwriting came from the ability to kind of like um just write something catchy because um in england especially you know they're all kind of um you know you were raised uh in church uh sort of anglo-saxon christian and, and we'd go and we'd listen to hymns Yes. That um that I would then subsequently end up learning every single one of them because my grandmother taught them to me in two weeks when I went to go and stay with her one summer and um so there were those and all the harmonic uh, tonations uh, and inversions and um you know some of them had the pentatonic scales and so in an, inadvertently I they just got integrated into my psyche and so did nursery rhymes that thing of like. Something really great that was memorable—a melody that you repeated just just enough where it would kind of set in and 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 either send you to sleep because uh, it was beautiful and Gaelic, um, or just you couldn't get it out of your head. Yeah, so, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, so we've we've got that you you had some experience acting in England as a child. You came over here into the states and got some more training there. You had background with stories and singing and your parents were encouraging so how did you get from all of that excellent background from a young age into the business uh you can you know just a brief thing but how did you make that transition that's a good question i'm i, I think my brother actually had an agent first and he's a few years older than me and and um he's a very just one of those kind of kids that he looked like you know, one of those kids that would be in a in the Mikey commercial. You know, hey, it's Mikey, that kid with a who had like who looked like he'd had a kind of a, a bowl stuck on his head and and right. then just taken the scissors and cut it. Yes. <laughs> so he had that kind of haircut and you know just this toe head, just just really really almost white hair, and um. Yeah, so we both ended up somehow becoming represented by Tony Kelman, which was a kids' agency. And it's just, it's a very small world because we ended up going to school with a boy called Billy Jacoby and Mino Palouse, um, who was on this show called The Voyagers, whose sister was Soleil Moon Fry, who was in Punky Brewster, and, and then Beck who's a really great musician, as you well know. He, uh, it, I ended up going to a Scientology school for um, the latter part of my junior high years and the beginning of high school because uh, it was the only school that we could really be enrolled in. Uh, well, that that I could, I was working professionally already as an actor then and do, or I, I did Conan and they would send me my work down there because I lived down in Mexico for six months. But yeah, so it, it was it was interesting uh, and a coincidence that, you know, Billy Jacoby had been represented by Tony Kelman as well and we all kind of had the same agent. I didn't find that out until later. That was kind of the aftermath that I discovered later. But I I just remember my dad taking me on commercials when I was like 12 and I ended up getting one and... Uh, 
it was a McDonald's commercial. Funnily enough, we ended up shooting it literally like 20 yards down the road from where we lived. It was just kind of serendipitous, um, very near where I used to play video games, just by the Marina Del Rey Pier. And uh, as things happen, you know, one thing led to another. It's like you do one commercial and then... I got cast in this thing where um, with David Foster and Olivia Newton-John and I played like a young Olivia Newton-John and it was, I think, like a, you know, some show that she had done. And uh, and then at the same time, I then get got discovered on the beach by a talent scout. Uh, I was boogie boarding with my brother and, and that's when I was cast in. To make a long story short, that ended up leading to Bolero uh, and then because of Bolero, I then got cast in Conan. And then after that, you know, it's just, I got on a roll. Um, Tony Kelman and Associates, they were a kid's agency. And then I think when I was about 14 or 15, yeah, by the time I uh, did Conan, um, I went to a big person agency where <laughs> they represented um, some people, fewer people in my age range, and more more adult actors, and but so, but because I was kind of making making, you know, I was kind of going into a, a different bracket at that stage. Um, so I was then with an agency called Triad, and then, yeah, I guess sort of three years after, two years or so after Conan, two or three years, I, I. You know, I was with Triad. Yeah, that was the agency, and then and then they got me this great script of the Wonder Years, and um, it was the best pilot I'd ever re- read. And I just knew that that was the role for me. And it's funny. I mean, I think the Bohemian spirit. Um, it wasn't really very put on at that stage for the audition. I think it was just something that I had uh, that was part of my personality my character you know and I think it had a lot to do with having lived in Taos because um you know it just it, it, there was even though we moved there in the late 70s it was um it was very much a, a place it still had a, a lot of the 60s there they'd shot Easy Rider there and Dennis Hopper lived there and you know it just was filled with musicians and artists and so that bohemian spirit was already I mean, I suppose in a way it could have started, you know, when I was doing me and my teddy bear back in London. But but I think it just really expanded into, you know, a, a much more um, westernized uh, bohemian spirit. So that, that that was really, it's funny, it wasn't until much later on after I'd finished the Wonder Years and I was doing, um, I got invited with the rest of the Wonder Years cast to UCLA to the, the film student program for, you know, the topic that, we were there for was to kind of talk to them about the chemistry that was needed to create a successful television show because they were all budding, you know, writers and directors and what have you. And uh, and so Carol and Neil said, yeah, it, was, it wasn't really so much that Olivia, you know, she, she just, she had Karen's spirit. You know, yes, she was English and we were able to see past that because she did a really a flawless American accent but it was really her spirit that is why we cast her in that so that was really interesting to me because when you think about a hippie or somebody who's bohemian you know they can be from any part of the world um I mean obviously hippies were most noted and and, and known for being in Woodstock and in 1968-69 um 
you know, you know, just jamming out to Hendrix and all the various, you know, Santana and all those groups. But, but you know, there are also people in Europe kind of doing the same thing. Probably not not quite in the same way, but it, you know, it's just a more Westernized thing, I think, in in, in Woodstock. And I think um, you know, playing Karen was gave me the ability. I had um. I had a lot to fall back on with that, I think, uh, having lived in Taos. And then, obviously, I had to watch a lot of documentary things. I read Letters to Vietnam, and I uh, I really had to get a sense of what it was like, um, not 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 unlike the where we are now, where the country's kind of split down the middle again, I hate to say, but, um, uh, you know, at that time, I think, you know, you had the... the, the people who were for it Vietnam and the people who were completely against it and and that was a lot of um the rub between Karen and Jack Arnold her dad on the show which was really fun to play because he was a Korean vet and I was very against the war and so we would we would go at it a bit at the dinner table um but yeah the Wonder Years was really I think the first thing that uh put me on the map I think in terms of um yeah, just playing kind of a really quirky role who's definitely very dogmatic and, you know, kind of lived, you know, she's very passionate and, you know, she was very stubborn like her dad and not unlike me, um, which I think I brought to the audition as well. And, um, you know, just that, I it was that thing that, that I, I represented that, that angst, uh, um, that youthful angst, uh, it, you know, it, at that time. And, and it, you know, it's, it's great when you have the opportunity to do that when you are young, um, and bring all the stuff that is, um, potent and, uh, visceral to you to kind of just bring it to the table and really express yourself. So yeah, that's sort of how I broke in. Olivia, you're going to get a kick out of this. You just covered pretty much an entire page of my, <laughs> my outline of questions for you just perfectly. Uh, so you just made my job a lot easier. You did a fantastic job of, of expressing all that stuff. Um, I was going to make reference to, of course, Conan and um, Bolero and and then move my way into the Wonder Years, and you nailed that perfectly. I did want to ask you a couple of things related to those before we move on. First of sure. all, you did make reference. In fact, you even said this, which is amazing to me. You made reference to the fact, oh, American accent is flawless. I exactly, exactly what I was going to say. Your American accent is flawless when you um, when you act in that way. And I had, truthfully, I had no idea you were British for the longest time, or at least from originally from England. My question for that is, how difficult is it to maintain that throughout a project, or is it not difficult for you at all? You know, it's an interesting question, and and I constantly do come back to it. You know, because I mean, sometimes I actually have to fight to to play uh, the role American because people get to know me and they go, oh, your, you know, your natural British accent is so lovely and I think it would really work for the character. And sometimes I have to say, well, no, actually, um, <laughs> I think she should be American or, um, you know, or she, you know, uh, just, you know, we all have to pick our battles um and and sometimes when you're an artist, it can it can be even more difficult. But you know, ultimately, uh, hopefully, you get you you do you do make the best decision. I, so so there have been times actually sometimes where where um, whenever I feel like the the character is is 
is uh, like I'm just not finding the voice because it's not just about doing the accent for me. It's about like where the epicenter of the character comes from, like where they live. Do you, do you, do you know what I mean? Like, do you, have you noticed people and they walk from their uh, neck or they walk from their nose, their nose leads and everything else sort of follows or, you know, their, their arse is kind of like really... Um, tucked in and everything's really tense and you know so then they kind of speak that way they say they speak a different way you know so you have to kind of find where um, where that where the person lives you know if, are they free in their body or, is, or you know are they tightly wound and if they're tightly wound then their brain probably works a different way do they speak really fast or do they speak really slow you know and it's kind of challenging to get to each thought, and they're very long-winded, which I can definitely be sometimes. But um, so the voice and the, the it's easy for me when I found where the character lives to to, yeah. to be as specific as I can be on that one. Got it. Going back just briefly to the Wonder Years, we won't spend too much time because you already nailed it very well. Um, I was going to say. Uh, the only disappointment I had with that show, quite honestly, was that your character was not on as much as I would have liked. Um, and I'm, I'm ah, so, thank <laughs> you. I mean, I'm not just trying to this up, but I really always wanted to see more of Karen. Uh, but I, I suspect that, you know, playing the, the, as you said, the 60s hippies girl, you're off doing the things that hippie girls were doing at that time for the character. So it wasn't as much of a presence. But yeah, we I think I and many people I knew tuned in a large part to see you on that show. So um, we're just glad that we were able to get what we could from it. Well, that's very sweet of you. Um, and I appreciate that. And I think, yeah, you know, um, for a long time I, I was hearing on the show, you know, we get, we gotta stick with the kids because they're golden. You know, it was like they had like this golden ticket from Wonka's chocolate factory. You know, like the golden ticket that he was nice. looking for to get into the the factory. But um, you know, so it was like Winnie, Paul, and and Fred. And I think because the narration was so much coming from 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 Fred, you know, and and then I think as the show progressed, um. Uh, and New World Television, you know, they they would sort of pacify them more. I think when Bob Brush came in and we had various different showrunners, um, they started to just kind of explore the horizons more to see that actually you could have the narrative voice um, played so well by Daniel Stern, you know, living through Fred's eyes uh, right. when he wasn't saying anything. And um, you could actually really go to these other places. You know, you could get a little bit out of the dotted line you could, you could go you could ex just just expand and um when they finally did that i think there was a lot to be said you know for like norma and and the pottery show or i mean one of my favorite shows was going to work when he went to to work uh jack's he went to jack's work yes and then and um and yeah i love that it was actually quite early on before neil and carol marlins uh, left the show um, yeah. and um, you know like I got to play Jack's secretary and, and Wayne got to play one of the other workers there and, and we all and, and then Jack and Norma I think played cops uh, so they got to actually 
uh, kind of be mom and dad, but go outside of the aesthetic of who Jack and Norma were on a, on a day to day on the show. And so we got to take more risks. And I think that that was like, that was really fun. And then I think they got to see that there was a payoff for that. And it only made the show, you know, it gave it another color. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, but I mean, I think the thing about me, funnily enough, is I was very, very appreciative that um, a lot of people don't know this, but I mean, I was um, paid for all shows produced, meaning whether I was in every episode or not, I would get paid. And then nice gig. Yeah, really. It was it was a nice gig. And then I and then I kind of blew the money, the money part of it by saying, well, I'm I want to be a master thespian, so I want to go off and do other things, and so in order to to go and do, I think I went and did this movie called Midnight's Child, where I played like a Swedish au pair that was like you know kind of you know had a pact with the devil or something, and I was you know the babysitter of this. I was the au pair basically for this little girl, and and and. It was it was a really it was actually a really fun character and and but I just you know I was just at that age where I was like yeah screw the money man I just want I just want to act and if I'm not going to be in every single episode I want to go do other things and so they let me do that but they said yeah you've definitely got to come back but we just you know for when we want to feature your character um, and but what it did is it gave me it made me a better actor I mean I I, I remember the the producer who I later worked with on Party of Five and he his name was Ken Topolsky and, and he's you know, I remember him saying, Yeah, you know, you've you've actually you've really actually become a better actress from going and doing these other projects. I did another movie called Spirit of Seventy Six and, and, you know, just other things. I was still attached to the show, but, you know, it just I kind of was just kind of there when they wanted to sort of you know, do stuff with Karen. And then I was very lucky, you know, um, when I came back and did those really pivotal shows for the character to really represent what that, what, what, you know, what people her age were doing then. Um, I got to work with, you know, John Corbett and David Schwimmer and, you know, just great, great, I had some great boyfriends on that show. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad that they did that for you to give you that flexibility because, as you said, they give you a chance to branch out a little bit and do other things. And then I would think once you were back on, um, it was more featuring you, as you were saying, that they wanted to at least have you there for those. And that maybe that uh, not having you as much made those more impactful for your fans. So I'm sure that was good stuff. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I think I think you could be right. Yeah. Definitely. You guys got the permit applications. Get the money. Cha-ching! Cha-ching! Good for you. Most people just take them and never come back. Well, from Karen, I'm going to j- <laughs> I love this. I'm going to jump from Karen up to a nerd girl in Wayne's World 2, because that, that movie certainly struck a lot of people, as did, its, of course, the first one. Um, now, your character was supposed to be sort of a female version of Garth. Is that what they had in mind? Yeah, I did this movie called Clean Slate with Dana and Valeria Galino and Kevin Pollock. And uh, it, was, it was directed by a man by the name of Mick Jackson. And, um, and yeah, and so, I, so I got this role of, um, you know, this kind of sultry sort of uh, um, a woman who was, you know, 
like the, the the girlfriend of somebody on the police force and Dana was like a detective in it and uh I end up sort of just being in his in his apartment one day when he comes home from work with a pair of handcuffs and um I basically sort of have my way with him or <laughs> I try and you know she's kind of psycho this character but she's but it was great it was very funny and we had like three or four really funny scenes and then he said you know we're you know, Lauren and and myself, I mean, Lauren Michaels from Saturday Night Live, you know, the, the, the head honcho there who's been doing it since Belushi and, and, and Dan Aykroyd were there. And, and um, he, uh, they, they've been looking for this, you know, we just can't find an actor who can play Garthette. And she's supposed to be a female version of me. And he said, and I think, he said, you know, I just really think you're you're goofy enough and outlandish enough and that you could really kill this. So he started doing the funny mouth thing and kind of showing me how to sort of, I, you know, it's like, bloody hell, Dana, how do you, like, how do you make your mouth like that? <laughs> well, it kind, it kind of tuck my, you know, like... My lips in, so I got no top lip, and I can't get all funny in my body. <laughs> and um, so I just sort of started sort of uh, picking up on him, as 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 I do with people and people that I find interesting, and um, emulate everything that they do. Um, it's 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 really only people that I love that I do that with, um, by the way. But um, yeah, so he said, well, I think you should play Garthette and I'm going to tell Lauren about it. So I went to the table read and uh, at that stage, other than Tia Carrera, I was really the only other female there at the table read. And Lauren and, and Mike came in, you know, and so I was like reading the Drew Barrymore role and they hadn't cast the Kim Bassinger role yet. Um, and, and so I read all, all, pretty much like four or five female roles. And um, so I actually gave, you know, it was a a really great audition piece, though I'd kind of been kind of promised it already, but I still, you know, there's a sort of known thing in the business with actors, especially as you know, even even if you're cast, you're you're still kind of auditioning. It was the same thing that happened to me when they found I was really English in the Wonder Years, and, and I was there the first day, and I started speaking in my normal accent and they and they, they said oh, uh, Olivia we, we we thought you were from Ohio and your dad grew potatoes right. and I said well I mean yeah well no I was, I was just saying that you know to get the job and so they I think they felt a little bit deceived but um luckily Neil and Carol kind of filled in for me and, and they were like yeah she's great she's great she's gonna she's gonna she's gonna knock this out of the park and um it was to say you know so during the table read for Wayne's World too it was it was it ended up being a great table read and and Lauren Michaels was like well I think the point is, is well who does she want to play in the film does she want to do the Drew Barrymore sexy role or does she want to do the you know the nerdy role, you know, in the show. What's <laughs> so? I, I I ended up saying no. I definitely want to play the nerdy role, and uh, I'm glad I did because it was uh, it was just so much fun. Well, um, baby, we're all glad you did as well. <laughs> it was a great job. And and when you just did that, Lauren Michaels, I can sit there right now thinking to myself, okay, here is Olivia, and here is Dana Carvey. 
And we know how good Dana Carvey is in impressions. So I don't know if you guys had some fun together with that, but man, what a combo. Oh, my God, yeah. Well, that was the thing is that, um, you know, Dana's a seriously smart guy. I mean, he's like a, he's like a quantum physicist scientist. His brother, actually, I think that's what he does for a living. He's a scientist. So he's just like immensely cerebral and just whip smart and just almost not an idiot savant, but it's almost like his comedy has an air of that to it because he's so good and he's so quick and, and his stuff is so character driven and it comes from such a a deep place. We had a lot of fun and um, we stay in touch. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his and I think, you know, you have to really, uh, I, you know, it's, I'm not the only person, but I think there's a lot of people uh, who get opportunities because of other people. And I think you can never forget that, you know? Um, so I'm very appreciative and, and very, uh, very thankful to him for that. Well, I want to pick your brain just a little bit uh, when it comes to some technical stuff, your acting approach and things like that, just a little bit. Before we do, I just want to mention one more guest spot you did because it's a show that I like very, very much. And that is you were on Third Rock from the Sun. Can you tell me anything about that experience? Because I really love that show. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, ironically enough, uh, since we're speaking about Saturday Night Live um, and and Dana and Mike and coming from that world and that, um, you know, just those plethora of actors. I mean, Phil Cartman, who I worked with on Greedy. Incidentally, I was working on, um, I was doing Greedy and shooting at the same time as I, as I was doing Wayne's World 2. So I was uh, really playing these two different characters and volleying back and forth between these two different roles. And, uh, uh, you know, working with Chris Farley on Wayne's World 2 and working with, you know, the next day I'd be working with Phil Hartman so <laughs> on, on a completely different set and film and Colleen Camp and, you know, um, just Ed Begley Jr., just all these really funny, Bob Balaban, all these really idiosyncratic, kind of funny, yet very intense actors, you know. Um, and so the, these two writers uh, that you, that from this show, Third Rock from the Sun, they, they were writers on, on uh, the, the, the husband and wife who, who created that show. I could have shot myself in the foot because I actually got offered the role of the female alien. Uh, they actually had me in. They were like, "Yo, Olivia, you gotta do this. It's gonna be so awesome. You're so perfect." And she's like, "She looks like a model, but she's not. She's an alien, and she's kind of uncomfortable. She's awkward in her body, and she doesn't really know, you know, what's going on. But she's, you know, really so fast on her feet, and she's, you know, it was, you know, it's like the role of a lifetime. And I, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, it sounds great." But anyway, I didn't end up didn't end up taking them up on it um uh and then later on i they 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 gave me that uh this this wonderful guest spot and um and that was really fun because i loved john lithgow and and i loved just all the actors on that show they're just you know who they ended up casting chris Kristen, uh what's her name Kristen johnson yeah she's a wonderful actress She's just so fun to watch and um, kind of like a dude, but she's definitely very female and, and, and you know, she, she's, she's um, 
she's just an interesting dichotomy uh, as an actress. And um, that was really fun. I uh, I remember, yeah, I just remember just playing and having fun and, and getting to work with uh, Bonnie and Terry and John and Kristen and, and, and all of them. And again, it was a, it was a sitcom. I mean, I, I really enjoy sitcoms. I know there was like, there was a thing in the business for a while where people would kind of like hold their nose like, oh, you're doing a sitcom. And it's like, yeah, but you know what? Um, there's nothing wrong with sitcoms. In fact, if you master it, I think you're a bloody good actor. Look at all the people who came from sitcom. It's almost like there's a vaudevillian thing to it. Which, uh, And then I got told a secret once that, you know, never play for the laughs of the audience. You you got to play to the camera because the those are those are there's so many more people in in that lens, millions and millions of viewers. And right. so they've got to be your friend, not not the audience. I no. mean they've got to be your friend too, but but don't get sucked in by by that as much as staying focused to the jokes and playing them to the camera. Well, see, now you just did it again beautifully. That that sort of transitions to my next thing. I was going to say, when doing a, a multi-camera sitcom, for instance, you're working in front of a live audience. You know, it's almost like doing a play. Obviously, that experience is very different to doing single-camera shows like uh, um, The Wonder Years, um, which is more like shooting a feature. Now, do you have a preference over one or the other? You like them both evenly? You know, it it, it just really depends. I mean, I I love I love The Big Bang Theory, and I think that all those actors. Uh, you know, I, I think Friends is a great, uh, those two shows that I just mentioned are great examples of like sitcoms that are brilliant. Uh, and again, it's, it's the casting, it, it's the, um, amalgamation of like everything that is just going on at the same time. It's, um, the believability that these people are all roommates and, um, you know, uh, one picks up where the other one leaves off and they can finish each, each other's sentences. And it's just so organic. That's what keeps you tuned in and what keeps you coming back for more. Um, it's infectious, you know. It's like a great rock group. Um, it's the same exact thing, really. It's just it's just a chemistry and a formula that they've written by themselves, just generated by the people who are, who've all been brought together and, and that, that's why casting is is so important so i don't really um i'm not biased with one or just, just just one or the other i just think it's it's about the group it's about the casting and the writing i mean look at seinfeld i mean you can never really go into great detail because they never did really with with each individual show the formula for that was like okay it's about a bagel and, uh, you know, everyone wants this bagel and they, they they need to know where they can get, where they can find it because they've only found, they've, you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm just making this up as I go along, but I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the story and the theme is as simple as it can possibly be. And that therefore it's, that's what makes it identifiable because everybody can kind of compute why. Everybody would be feeling that way. Everybody can identify with what the subject matter is. Right. And you can just go, you can go to town with it. You know, it's like a never ending thing and it's just joke after joke. And you know when you're onto something good because there's a flow to it. So um, 
Whereas, you know, there was a show that I did called Olivia Master's Life, which you watched those impersonations that I did. That was my favorite scene in the whole show. I didn't think the rest of the show worked. I think that it's sometimes when you, when somebody, like I had my own show for that particular, for what you watched. It was like I had my own um, development deal and it was with Brillstein Gray and it was um, actually with Castle Rock, the people who do Seinfeld. That was the production company. But it's like they got, they ended up getting a writer who kind of knew what to do with me, but not really. But he sort of placed me from that I was from the Midwest and Chicago, which is <laughs> just like, I mean, you know, I'm sure I can play that. But I mean, I think I think he just, well, you know, he just, it wasn't the right match. And so he nailed that, that particular scene and it, it allowed me to really flourish and kind of do my thing but i think there was just it was just short of having more scenes like that you know um it just wasn't as well thought out so it's like you have to really get lucky and be um paired up with somebody that's really your your alter ego if you will who gets you and has spent enough time with you or the cast where he knows exactly, or they, she knows exactly, or they as a group of writers or showrunners know exactly what to do with it and really take it and milk it. Um, and that's not an easy task. You know, it, it, it takes a lot of luck. And uh, it's one of those serendipitous things. It's a timing thing. It's um, just putting the right, you know, the right pieces together. So when it works, it, it's undoubtedly, you know, a great thing. It's got to be thrilling. Yeah, I want to wrap us up today with something that I really want to be able to do when I get professional actors like yourself on this show is ask a little bit about the art of it, the technique of it, because it's fascinating to me. So let's say you've landed a role in a project. You've been given a script. How do you go about approaching a character? When you look at that script, you're reading, this is the character I'm going to play. How do you approach that? How do you come up with a character based on what's written on the page? My feeling on that is that you have to go completely with your impulses and whatever visuals come to you. And um, and it takes a bit of channeling. I mean, I, I've done roles like, you know, the Law & Order Nicole Wallace role that I played. It was supposed to be one episode. And, um, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio and I had done a film called The Velocity of Gary prior to that. Um, so we had we had great on camera presence and chemistry, but it was the chemistry as friends that we had that um really worked for that dynamic. He's you know, he's he's an intense dude and um um and I and you know and, and he's he's a big guy and, and all of those things are, are wonderful and they make him an, an amazing actor. Um, but as a friend, I kind of really know the ins and outs of what makes him, make, makes him work. And I think I used a lot of that with, with the Nicole Wallace role is that, um, it's like, I, I know, I, I knew how to get inside him, you know, cause he was, he's a good friend and we've had a lot of great chats and, and, you know, given each other a lot of great advice. And so, you know, I brought a lot of that to that first episode and I think he, 
he brought a lot of that to the character, you know, to the opposing thing of the contrast of of how he directly dealt with, you know, this criminal who's a sociopath and and um you know, she's reinventing herself all the time and, and he found her interesting. Uh his character Goran found her interesting. I think Vincent found Olivia interesting. So it's like how much do you when you're doing roles where you play off somebody that you know, um, that you have a history with, or you know, off when the cameras are off, you know, in in real life, you, you must always try and bring that that history to 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 your art, to your work. I mean, that truth, you know, because that's what registers. That's that's ultimately what makes the best kind of chemistry, if you can. And, and, and if you're meeting somebody for the first time, I think whatever actor that you're acting um, next to um, for the very first time, you know, you make a choice to either get to know them really well or to just use your instincts and, and based on what the story is conjuring up. Sometimes actors like to stay as far away from each other as they can uh, whilst they're working and just save it because they know they have... Maybe they can't stand each other, but when the cameras roll, there's something kinetic that happens. It just um, is like fireworks. And um, so then you do your own prep when you're reading through the script. Or what I do is I do my own prep and, you know, whatever visuals are coming to me or, you know, I'll kind of walk around and, and read, you know, think about the lines or just think about how it's, you know, where it's sitting in me and stuff will just come. And then that's kind of like when I always know, okay, I think I'm going to put this to bed now just for a bit and, and come back to it, um, you know, maybe in a week because what you get that first hit of sometimes what you get is really intense. And so you want to let it percolate and just sort of simmer. And, um, you can, because a lot of actors, and I've been guilty of the same thing, you can over-rehearse, you can over-prepare. That happens sometimes when you maybe haven't worked for a while and, and you don't trust that you're going to bring your game, your A game to it. And I think that's the mistake that a lot of us actors make sometimes, you know, the insecurities or the fear of, oh, well, I haven't worked in eight months. I've got to really over-prepare just so that I've got it all, I've got it all there. You have to then go even further and go, oh, but I've been doing this now for a decade or two decades or three decades. So, of course, whatever I've been reading, even if I just read the script every night, it's going to be there. Subconsciously, it's all flowing around in that, in that, in that brain and in my psyche. That's fascinating. Now, depending on the project, do writers or directors, do they give ideas to you as to how to approach a character, or do they generally let you, the actor, you know, formulate that without any input? I think really great directors will sometimes leave you alone. They'll completely leave you alone, almost to the point where, you know, you'll, you'll be thinking, oh, Jesus, am I, I, does he just not like me? Or, you know, I mean, I've, I've had occasions where I thought, you know, uh, how come he's going on to all the other actors or like half of the actors and he's just leaving, you know, me and Megan alone or it's just because maybe what we're doing is really working and, and he's trying to get the other actors to match the tone, 
the the two actors who are really in the right direction are going, or they come up to me more than they do the rest of the actors because I'm the one who needs pulling along, you know. So it just depends. It depends. Um, each person is different. It's 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 always funny. You would think that uh, the the ones that say the least sometimes know the most, and the one that's the ones sometimes that say the most do because they feel they have to or they because they just have to look like they're doing their job right. but um doesn't always mean you're doing your job if you say very little even if it's just one word because actors are so sensitive you know they don't like line readings <laughs> yeah i i don't mind i'm like tell me give it to me give it to me <laughs> because you know Sometimes I just say, just say it the way you want to hear it. I just want to hear you say it. And then, of course, I'll never say it exactly the same way, but I'll just, in the back of my mind, I know what they want. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've blown takes on purpose before because I just want another take. You know, I know I can do it better. You know, there's all, the longer you do it, um, the more technical you become. And I think that's a great thing because you need a little bit of both. You need to be an organic, natural, intuitive actor, but you also definitely, definitely need technique because you wouldn't believe the things that happen once you get on the set. And if you're not, if you don't have that toolbox with your Meisner and your Stanislavski and your Harry Master George or your Estelle Adler, you know, you need to have a little bit of the technique that all the greats have had. You also don't know what kind of director you're going to run up against, and so they may be just Stanislavski trained, or they may just they be a, maybe a total method director, or they may, may be some new cat off the street. But you, so you, you, that's the other thing is you've got to stay um, current, I'm actually about to take a class uh, with uh, Tom Hardy's teacher. And, uh, uh, you know, he's out of London and he only comes here once a year uh, in the summertime. And it's this new style of acting that's just really exciting to me. You actually have to kind of read up on it before you go to the class. And, and I mean, I'm going in as a into the beginner's class. Uh, with actually a friend of mine who I did this show, The Single Guy, with. And um, I'm, I'm so excited to just uh, go back into a class and learn, like, this new stuff. I'm a huge Tom Hardy fan. I just think he's the biggest chameleon. He's he's masterful at character, um, you know, putting a character together and, and the genesis of how you how you make, how you just build the inner life. Because that's what it's all about. I mean, so much of what you read is crap. But if you know what you're doing and you can find a strong inner life and create a soul that's like living and breathing on screen or on television, you know, you have the opportunity to do great work. It doesn't matter if it's crap, you know, if everybody, you know, um, I mean, I say that in the nicest possible way. None of us really want to do crap, but... You know, there's a lot of even really big budget stuff that's out there and you go, wow, this just, I can't believe this director, like he just had all these amazing actors and he could, you know, why did he not, you know, fill up the space? Why why didn't he make, why didn't he edit it a different way or, you know, why didn't he allow the actors to take different kind of 
make different kind of choices. Right. So you have to fight for those kind of things, I think. Okay. Well, last couple of things for you on this technical side. We're going to wrap up. You've been very gracious. When it comes to the theme of this particular podcast, which, of course, is stories, how do you view your role as an actor when it comes to the art of storytelling? Because it's not just the writers who are telling stories, the directors. In my view, the actors are also kind of telling the stories. So how do you view yourself in that regard? I just think we always have the opportunity to be a really powerful storyteller. Even if we've got no lines, in fact, you learn more when you play. I mean, if you look at the early films, I, I, a lot of my studying has come from watching Charlie Chaplin and um, a lot of the old um, silent movie stars. They were movie stars, but they never said anything. Nothing came out of their mouth. I mean, but they had just as deep and rich of a, you know, uh, in a monologue, if you um, do, like breaking down all these sort of active words, they sound so kind of cliche, but um, yeah. So how do you how do you tell a story with your eyes? It's not with what you say. You can be saying, "I love you. You're the most important thing in the world to me," and in your eyes, it can be like, "I can't stand this guy. He's like, you know what I'm saying? You could be lying. People people lie all the time. So it's like. That's a huge part of telling the story is going against what you're saying um, and having the audience be with you, but the characters in the scene with you not know, but the audience knows. It's like that's what's so genius about Lucille Ball, another not a dissimilar actor from Charlie Chaplin, a clown, a chameleon, a vaudevillian trained you know, actress. She just generationally, she was from that from that time and um so she brought all of that with her and i love lucy so the audience were always right there with her in fact ahead of her that was what was so genius about that show is that they knew that in the chocolate factory that she couldn't stick enough chocolates in her mouth nice. <laughs> she couldn't eat those chocolates quick enough um so they they were ahead of her and but she's a couple steps behind and so that's how she was a genius storyteller through her comedy through the choices that she made she would kind of like it's not that she would play dumb she just her one objective like Seinfeld I mean if you just break down formula it's like you her it's very simple she just wanted to be with Ricky and that's that was her objective through every show how can I get more time with Ricky when he's at the, you know, uh, out at the, at the club, you know, I got to, how am I going to break into the club with Ethel so that I can sneak, you know, see Ricky though he doesn't want me there. I'm supposed to be home in bed, you know, whatever. So it's like the audience just are falling about themselves, knowing exactly what the story is, but she has to tell it. Oh, that, that's, oh, my God, that's a great answer, Olivia. Thank you so much for that, because that's something that's very keen to me to find out about uh, or to, to learn about from actors is how they think about that kind of stuff, because um, I myself, you know, as you mentioned, I, I, I do writing, and it fascinates me to think of what I put something down, perhaps on paper. How do the actors look at this? How do they approach it? And that was a great answer. So last question then on this sort of technical thing is is there any sort of role you've not been able to do that you'd particularly like to do you know i love all Maldemar's movies you know um 
I love uh, Victoria Brill. She's an incredible uh, actress, a Spanish actress. Uh, she's in, uh, you know, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown and Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down and High Heels. Um, kind of a cross between Judy Garland and... She looks a little bit like Rosanna Kett and, and Judy Garland. She's just got these beautiful big eyes. And she's a great example of an actor that acts with her eyes and and her heart. And um, she's funny, but she's also, you know, to make you cry and laugh in one heartbeat, you know, walks that tightrope uh, so beautifully. You know, Mike Lee's stuff is all about working class England. It's all about the generations of... It's almost like the equivalent to Chekhov in Russia, you know, it's, it, it's, it's about, the stories are about, um, people who have kind of a hard life. Yeah. Like nothing, nothing's easy. Uh-huh. And the, the comedic relief comes uh, out of the pain of their existence to the point where it's kind of so painful that they have to just laugh about it or it becomes funny because it's so um, consistently that way that, you know, I just, I just love his approach to filmmaking. I think he's as good of a director as he is a writer. So he's a film, he's a filmmaker. Yeah. Well, well said. And he tells stories. Yeah. He's a great storyteller. Now um, we're going to wrap up here. Do you have uh, any advice? Uh, You might be, you've been asked this before. Maybe you haven't. Do you have any advice to aspiring actors? Just starving actors? Uh, <laughs> well, they may be. No, I was saying aspiring actors. People want to get in. Oh, aspiring? Oh, yeah. Um, I think if an actor or someone is getting into the field of acting to be famous, then hopefully that will change and it will become about the love of, of your craft. But I think more than anything, you know, you have to believe that that you do have a voice and that you have something really important to say through characters that you bring to life, okay. which I think ultimately is probably what you, what you discover as you, as you, as you act and act and act and act, um, is that you do actually have something very specific to say. And eventually a role will come along that embodies that. And, um, and you and you get the opportunity to do so, but you know you have to stick it out. You have to have a very thick skin. Um, but mo- more, most importantly, you have to believe in yourself and continue to go back to that place where there was that first glimmer, uh, uh, or you know that first spark that it, it was ignited in you that that got you excited about doing it. Uh, what, uh, like a childlike wonder. We have to continue to get to get back to that place to, to to stay fresh and excited about what we're doing because there's just too many people doing it and that the competition is is too fierce if you don't really enjoy what you're doing and stay excited and stay stay raw about what it is and never forget never give up on what it is that you really want to say. And it doesn't matter if if you end up becoming a, an activist at the end of the day or at the end of your journey, the way Marlon Brando did. I think that what he discovered is really he was an activist who was an actor. You know, sometimes acting gets you to a place where 
to a more enriching place, you know, where you're a humanitarian and you want to be part of all these causes because you've exposed so much of your soul um, through all these different people that you've played and all these different experiences and you've gone on all these journeys that you want to go on an even deeper journey that's in real life, you know? Yeah. So who knows? I just think it's a magical journey and it's a brave journey, but a great uh, and enriching one, if you can stay on it. Well, once again, Olivia, that, that's a really excellent answer. And I, that's going to really be helpful to some people if they really listen to what you just said. That was fantastic. Now, as for you yourself, as we finish up, what projects of any kind? With all of your different talents, do you have anything coming up you'd like to share with the audience before we close up? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I've been working on a bunch of stuff. Um, nothing I can necessarily talk about uh, right now that's not already been released. I mean, I've, um, I've got a movie called Lost Girls that's coming out, which is about child trafficking, which is a very, very dark subject matter. But I, I really dug my heels into that, uh, playing the mother of a, of a, a you know, a, a young girl who gets caught up in that, and, and she's a kind of a suburban, I play a very suburban woman, so she's just really like any kind of woman who is focused on her career and, and maybe putting her children, her children have become secondary because of the trials and tribulations of earning a living, and having to be the breadwinner and then her baby disappears, her child. And uh, so that was an, an intense journey. I, I love doing stuff that's journey driven where it's really an experience. I mean, as I keep traveling down this road of, of being an artist, for me, it's really more about the experience now. Okay. Um, so there's that and, and, uh, I'm doing a movie in England that's coming up, but I can't talk about that yet, but that's a romantic comedy, um, typically quintessential English. Uh, and obviously this film, um, Madam of Purity Falls, which has uh, just come out on Lifetime. Um, Invader Zim movie for Netflix, which is uh, coming out August 16th. Drain the Virgin, which has just come out. Uh, fun character on there, and and yeah, and more music. Excellent. I was going to say, any upcoming music as well? Well, yeah, this end title track song that I've just written for this movie, uh, Lost Girls. Okay. And um, working with a producer. So yeah, in the midst of working on uh, on 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 the, something that I believe will be a new album. I mean, it, it may be a, an entire album and in its entirety, or it may be just sort of more like, I don't know if it's going to be a whole album or... Uh, or sort of fewer tracks than what normally makes. I, that's yet to be determined. We're just demoing a lot of stuff yeah. and picking the best, the ones that speak to me most right now. Okay. Well, that's great. So you've got a lot of projects in the, in the can, so to speak, a lot of things upcoming, and I'm glad to hear that because you got a lot to say in your art, clearly, from what you've shared with us tonight, and I can't be more grateful. You got your and Dan's show every Friday with Dan and Olivia have uh, a tradition that I stole for this program, which which is to let the guests choose the outro music. So what would you like us to play the show out with? Um, okay. Well, uh, let's see. Brrr. 
I would like for you to play Jeff Buckley's This Is Our Last Goodbye. Excellent choice. Well, my goodness, Olivia, thank you. It's been such a pleasure to have you on this show, and I can't thank you enough for being willing to do it. And you've been a charming and very knowledgeable guest, and it's really uh, brought out what this show is about. So thank you so much. And by the way, I have to say, I'm one of these guys that uh, that just really loves a British accent that women have. So thank you for sharing that as well. Sure. <laughs> You're welcome. You're okay. most welcome. Yeah, it was, it was really fun. I had a good time. All right. Well, thank you again. And folks, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time on Long Stories Short. Bye. Thanks for listening to Long Stories Short with Kevin Courtright. If you'd like to send Kevin your thoughts, comments, or suggestions, he can be reached at lsswithkc at gmail.com. Once again, that email address is lsswithkc at gmail.com. We also invite you to join our podcast Facebook group where you can share your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and, long story short, we look forward to having you join us again next time.